0: test one two all right let's go right to it this is dawn panconian again this is myth ritual and symbolism this is tuesday september 20th welcome back um we are starting week four which means i'm going to be talking through your problem posing for week three and the content that we read for week three thank you always for being here um your questions again are so satisfying i'm so thrilled to get to be here and in conversation with you, so thank you. Um, I can't even tell you how exciting it is to see you in question, not only pushing back against the readings but also and images, but also pushing back against things that I say aloud to you here. I really am starting to feel like we're in conversation and I dig it, so thank you. I want to start. If last week we were talking about myth, ritual, and primitivism, right? And these old assumptions that um, modernity was either most complex or, or most chaotic and to be escaped from, and um, in, in the ways in which thinkers and artists, um, who are also thinkers, so let's say scientists and artists, worked to construct. Um, the past as as something that, that was simple, whether that was noble or, again, nasty. And in so doing, both defined the past and also defined the present, helped people to understand themselves um, regardless of, of where they were positioned in the present. And as I say that to you, I think right away of constructs that we still use, like, and let's say we shouldn't use them anymore, and a lot of people have stopped using them, but they still linger, you still see them in pop content, you'll find them on blogs, I think you'll find them less in journalism now, you don't find them in academia very much anymore. Um, constructs like developing versus developed world, right? Doesn't that start to sound a little bit like primitive versus modern in the sense that somebody already got there and somebody else is still arriving, still getting there? So I thought one good way to open this conversation as part of a transition from last week is just with a reminder that because of how we think about evolution and because of how good we are, um, and this is really dangerous, at applying it not only to nature and biology but also to society, we often think that Peoples, for example, communities can be at different points along a single evolutionary trajectory, right? And so it's easy to say, you know, like this is 2022 and in Paris, France right now, everybody is. And maybe we put them at the end point of that line of evolution. And and if you close your eyes and you picture evolution as a single line, maybe if you're socialized into the U.S., you're picturing a linear line. Um, that's a little bit redundant, but it's not a squiggle, right? It's not a, um, what do you call a garabato in English? Oh my God. A, like what kids do scribble. It's not a scribble. It's not a squiggle. It's linear. It's, it's a single line, um, that starts at one point and ends at another point and there are no kinks in it. And it's probably going from left to right. And it's probably also moving upwards, right? Is that if you had to represent evolution as a line, is that what you see? Because I suspect, I think that's how we're socialized, to see evolution in the US. And what I want to say to you is that that thinking then informs how we understand different people in the present right now, and and along with words like developing versus developed, or first world, second world, third world, which also thankfully went way out of style a couple decades ago. What you want to do um, is understand what you want to do. What we all need to do is understand that this is 2022 and everybody who is here in 2022 alive and kicking is equally evolved, right? Um, We've all made it to this point in time. So there is no somebody stuck back somewhere in the past on that line elsewhere, right? That if you've made it here, you are as advanced as anybody else who's made it here. You have um, evolved to the exact same moment in time. You have the exact same, let's say, historical trajectory. That's um, length of historical trajectory. Does that mean, does that make sense? As as a fellow homo sapien, um, we all got here. And so there, messy, but that's where I wanted to start. And then I wanted to say, so now if we can move past that thinking about myth as proto-religion, as early religion, as something other than religion, and just focus on on myth the way anthropologists do now in the present, what I want to say to you is it's really useful, and I think it'll simplify a lot of your thinking in a way that is good, not that simple is always better, but in this case it could be, to choose a working definition. And so, for me, again, my working definition of myth is a sacred narrative that transcends generations. And I'm telling you that here up front, because I think a lot of you asked really good and really interesting questions um, that have to do with like myth and lie, myth and truth, can myths become truths, when at what point in time do myths become truths, or um, how do you distinguish a myth from a lie, and I'm going to go into these further because these are really important to think through but i also want to show you up front right away how useful it is to have a working definition that allows you to sidestep that line of questioning my sacred narrative that transcends generations means i'm never wondering is this a lie is this a truth what percentage of this right we just read ira ternos what percentage of this is true quote unquote and what percentage of it is fantastical or otherworldly i'm never asking those questions because they don't matter to me what matters to me is one that that there are people that do or have in the past believed something to be sacred a narrative what matters to me is that it is something that has transcended generations so it's not just a flash in the pan trend It's It's something with longevity and what matters to me ultimately is then to think about what that myth does and and what it means for the people who hold it sacred and also maybe more generally what do myths do for humanity and this is me betraying my functionalist roots as a thinker but instead of focusing on lie versus truth I'm focusing right away on what does that myth do what does the pull yourself up by the bat bootstraps in America myth do? For different people positioned differently in the social field. So what does it do for someone who was born in Cabrini Green, Chicago, um, that's a housing project that is currently almost, almost entirely abandoned um, on the not quite south side of Chicago, but it's a it's a project that became iconic of all that was wrong with housing projects in the United States. The sort of isolating poor people, isolating poor black people in particular, putting them on a plot of land, um, absent resources, and saying, okay, here's your house, go forth. And um, if you've ever seen The Wire, you you can add narrative to, to what I'm describing here. Um, or if you live in the U.S., you, you've lived this, you know this, if you've ever passed housing, abandoned housing projects in particular, because this isn't how the U.S. addresses poverty anymore. Um, this was a huge fail for urban developers. But in any case, what I want to say is, how is someone who's growing up in Kagrini Green affected by the pull yourself up by the bootstraps myth? versus how is someone who is, let's say, um, born into, and we can even say independent of race, let's just say born into a ton of money, and so born with a ton of financial capital. How is that pull oneself up by the bootstraps narrative going to inform um, the experiences of the individual born with money versus the individual born without money? How is it going to um, shape the motivations, perhaps, of that individual? How is it going to curtail the frustrations, for example, This makes me think right away of Karl Marx, and I'm going to do Marx elsewhere here today, so I apologize, but um, I just, I like to think with Marx, you know that already. Um, Marx called religion the opiate of the masses, and people cite that all the time to say Marx was an atheist and he hated religion, that religion was a drug. But Marx goes on, this is what I should do, I should just read it to you, Um, because I want you to hear the longer quote. Religion is the opiate of the masses. See, everybody just quotes that part and then they leave the rest. Um, That's so funny. Google is absolutely confirming the point that I want to make for you. Um, What... Um, Here's what I need to add. I need to add um, soul for soulless conditions. That'll get me to what I want. Religion is the sigh of the oppressed creature, the heart of a heartless world, and the soul of soulless conditions. It is the opium, or the opiate, of the people. That quote is different from religion is the opiate of the people because what Marx is saying there is religion Gives hope. It I mean, there's a way to read this. Yes, Marx was an atheist. Yes, Marx was critical of religion. Mostly Marx was critical of religion because he thought religion worked, and this is how this links to the rest of what I was saying. This really isn't just a crazy out-of-nowhere rabbit hole. Um, Marx was really frustrated with capitalism. He's studying capitalism, and I like to think of him as a historian of an economic historian, a historian of a new economy that was still taking shape in the middle of the 19th century, and he's trying to document what he sees going on and he's also trying to predict how he sees it going. And he sees this system, this institution, this economic institution that is tremendously um, unjust, unequal, that doesn't seem to lend itself to fostering justice or equality, right? This is a system where the more capital you have, the more capital you can make, not a system where capital is evenly redistributed and every new generation gets a fresh start and they're all in the same, right, platform at the same place. That That's not what Marx sees, and that we know that's not how capitalism is. And so Marx's frustration was with religion was, you know what it's doing is it's allowing all of these people who are really oppressed, who are poor, who are... Um, disempowered, oh, I don't like empowerment as a concept a lot, but people who um, are forced to sell their labor to other people who are in position to buy that labor, that's really how Marx thinks of the working classes. There's two b- kinds of people in the world, the kinds of people that can buy other people's labor and the people who must sell their labor. And so Marx is seeing religion as something that allows those individuals who are oppressed whose wages are, are the least possible who are maybe barely making it and what they have is religion they have faith they have and so yeah marx is frustrated right he's saying okay this is something that's going to keep you from revolting because you're going to say i just have to do it i just have to survive i just have to work hard i'm you know it's going to keep you in line it's the morality the rules the the laws they're all there inside of religion so you're going to do good, and you're going to behave, and you're going to keep showing up to work at six in the morning every morning, and you're going to work your twelve-hour shift, and you're going to go home, and you're not going to be pissed at your um, the owner of the factory in which you work, and you're not going to be you're not going to revolt. That was really Marx's problem with religion. He saw it as something that was going to um, curtail revolt. It was going to mitigate that that need in individuals, that, that recognition of their own oppression, and therefore the desire to rise up. And so let me insert here quickly that I gave a talk on abolitionism at UMCAD a year ago. And in doing that, the research, just to historically contextualize abolitionism, I wanted to provide in this teach-in a quick context of, of abolitionism in the U.S. in the past. And it turns out that those most radical abolitionists, what they all had in common, and I said this out loud and I wanted people to think about this, what they all had in common was really strong convictions, um, and and specifically convictions in another world, they had faith, they they were um, Christian, they were Muslim, they were Jewish, they were... um, those are really maybe the most prominent examples. But in any case, so I don't want to say to you that it turns out you can't have religion and arm a revolt. We can think of... Um, Martin Luther King, we can think of so many people who were tremendously religious and also um, pivotal, essential to revolt and social change. Um, but I do want to say to you that... Um, <laughs> oh my god, I did end up down a little bit of a rabbit hole. Um, I'm already at my next Marx quote. No, let me go back. Um, I wanted to say to you that... My interest in myths and my working definition of myth, a sacred narrative that transcends generations, allows me to focus solely on what myths do. And so do myths keep people quelled? Do they quell masses? Do they mitigate revolt? Do they, um, in answering questions, in reinforcing um, certain kinds of moralities and value systems, and maybe those moralities or maybe those value systems privilege Um, peacefulness or behaving or sitting still and quiet and being, you know, docile or listening when you're talked to or there are all sorts of things, there are all sorts of systems of values and norms that myths can potentially, and also ritual, but myths right now is what I'm talking about, can potentially reinforce. And so I want to say that too up front because I want you to see that in sidestepping the what part of myth is true and what part of myth isn't true, I'm not not taking that seriously. I'm interested in how insidious myths can be, how dangerous myths can be, and here now is where at first I will transition to, Adriana. the question you asked, and I'm going to read a quote from Chernus that you included, and then Linnea, you also quoted. It was, like, really interesting because Abriana, you quoted the first part and then ended at this particular sentence, and then Linnea picked up with that particular sentence and quoted the latter part, and you arrived at totally different questions. But I'm going to read the entire quote to all of you here, and then um, I want us to think through it. So this is, and just to contextualize again, this is from Ira Ternos' Myth in America, and Abriana, you said... Ira Ternos' essay was amazing, and as a black American who has been aware of many American myths, i.e., pick yourself up by the bootstraps, etc., from a young age, this quote in particular stuck with me, given the politics of our current era. This is the quote Ultimately, though, when a myth is working, its factual truth is irrelevant, because the people for whom a myth is alive do not judge it by whether it can be proven factually true. Rather, the myth is the lens through which they see the world and judge. What is true and false? And then Linnea picks up and continues that quote. It tells them what they can accept as factually true and what they can consider false. It tells them what to pay attention to and what to ignore. It tells them how to interpret their experiences. In all of these ways, myth shapes their view of the truth. And so this again reinforces that it doesn't matter what percentage of a myth is true or not. Can a myth be entirely true? I'm going to suggest to you that it can be. And again, I'm putting true in quotes. Let's say when I say true, I mean empirically based and that contemporary science Contemporary scientific findings suggest that something is in fact that way, right? So we know science, too, is always evolving. And I'm going to get to that, too. Um, Linnea, in your introduction by mythology for week two, you gave this awesome example. Um, You used genetics as your myth and i'm gonna get there because i want to talk to all of you about that i realized in writing out loud to linnea there and then to some other people who had commented i just i need to have this conversation with all of you um we like to juxtapose things like nature to nurture we like to juxtapose things like religion to science and those don't always hold up um we like to think in binaries i mean Claude Lévi-Strauss will tell you, the human mind likes to order the world in binaries, and that's how we make sense of everything. Um, we're, I took Claude Lévi-Strauss out of this course, <laughs> so if you want to talk about that, we can talk about that. There's tons of space, let me know. But um, we're not reading Lévi-Strauss this semester. And so what I'm going to do is start by saying that those binaries don't always work. They they So for example, religion isn't the opposite of science, and this, Nicholas, you asked questions both um, last week and this week that maybe I'll just jump down to, do I do that here, have to do with this. You were asking, if religion is the first step humans take to understand our world, will the outcome always lead us towards a rooted or grounded reality of science? Like do we necessarily if, if religion is sort of part of the path and religion is something and you're thinking with the map of world without mythology is religion something that that evolves and and again we have this bad habit of thinking evolution means grows in complexity. That's not a fact. Um, but if we're thinking with Spence from a couple weeks ago, that 101-year-old anthropological right that was totally problematic. A lot of people in the past, and if we're thinking with comparative um, mythologists, a lot of people in the past have said to us that look, this is really how it works. It looks like a tree and you start with one and you get to a whole lot of other mythologies, systems of of myths and or look at this map and can you see how these regions have things in common and and, Again, I'm not going to belabor this this week because I think I did last week, but those are things that are really sexy to think because they unite us. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to unpack a little bit of this, too, because you guys did push back on that and say, what does it mean? What does multiculturalism really mean? What can it look like? That's a great question. Um, anyways, what I do want to say right now, right here, is that... Um... Oh my god! I'm really jumping like mad. Religion. Oh, it's the false dichotomies. It's the false binaries. It's the we. Science isn't the opposite of myth. Um, myth isn't the opposite of truth. Um, myth isn't lie. Like, if if we can let all of that go and and let the just kind of live outside of the binaries for a while, then we're freed. Um, Not to think that, like, myth is the sacred narrative of religion and it necessarily gives way to science. Here's my way back in. Linnea, you're my way back in. Thank you. But we can think instead, like, what are the sacred narratives around us all over the place? In our religion, maybe in our economics thinking, maybe in our political thinking, maybe in our um, scientific thinking, And, and how do they function? What do they do for us? What do they do for society? Um, why do they persist and, okay, Linnea, I said you're my way back in and you are because we're going to talk genetics, but Adriana, because I started reading that quote that Linnea, you finished, let me get to your question. Um, you asked via that quote, um, which really at its core is myth is the lens through which we see the world and judge what is true and false you ask, how can certain myths in American culture be separated from outright lies? Who gets to decide? Is it something we just live with? And you're asking this, and that's, so I want to say that out loud because I've just said, like, I don't worry about where myth is lie and where it's not, but you're asking this because this is, it feels really important, especially since we all now know things like, this is, when Chernes wrote this, um, nobody was talking alternative news yet. And a lot of this early study of mythology, that wasn't a concept. And so there was more of a taken-for-grantedness about the distinction between truth and non-truth. But so you continue to ask and you say, I'm asking this specifically in the context of the political sphere, where lies the 2020 where lies, for example, the 2020 election was stolen, etc., are treated as an undeniable reality. And again, we might say alternative truth. How does one live in a society where such a large portion of the population believes in these living myths and cannot be convinced otherwise, no matter how dangerous they might be to others who live in this country? And so that's the crux of the matter that I can't forget when I'm saying to you, look, I'm not going to live in that space of what's lie, what's truth, where does lie become truth? When does myth become entirely true or when was it always from the beginning entirely true? I'm not going to live in that space. But I'm going to be hyper aware of the fact that these narratives, sacred narratives, regardless of how true or non-true they are, are tremendously, potentially, tremendously dangerous. And so what happens is even truths are often partial truths, right? And so I don't want truth to be like off the hook here. I don't want to be like, okay, the things that are racist and classist and sexist and problematic are the lies and or they're the lies that are based in truth and the truth just gives them enough legitimacy and then and then they're lies and and those are the things that are really making it hard to be alive in 2022. I don't want to say that because partial truth is every bit as detrimental. And the other thing that happens when you start to distinguish truth from um, lie or truth from myth is that when you set up science as something other, something that's outside of what is the mythic, then you end up with this problem of, I mean, everybody who's ever glanced at, and I know all of you here have tons of examples in your head when you stop to think, the history of science knows that science, scientists have gotten so many things wrong and that scientists too exist and think in context and so they're informed by the cultures from which they do their science. And now there's multiple ways I can go here. I can talk to you about culture or I can talk to you about science. Let's go science first. Um, A lot of you saw in the introductions Linnea's... um, intro by myth and so you'll know what i'm talking about already for those of you who did not what linnea um does is reads the definition of genetics and then also has a selection from um sacred which talks um about the overlap between the sciences and um, pre-scientific or non-scientific realm so example the symbol of the medical world being the two snakes coiled around that staff. like what is this link how did this get become the icon of medicine um what i want to talk to you about is a particular book that i really like and i didn't realize how old it was until i went to look it up for you guys here roger lancaster is an anthropologist who wrote a book in two 2000- thousand. titled The Trouble with Nature, Sex in Science and Popular Culture. And I'm going to read a selection from the review. And what he does is he goes after genes and genetics and genetic thinking and the naturalization, a kind of obsession with naturalizing explanations for things. The need to find a gene to make everything legitimate, for example. And now here's a selection from a review. Of that book by Piatica. If there is any trouble with nature, it must be a cultural phenomenon conceptualized only by human beings. In this vivid, sharp, and fun-to-read study anthropologist, Roger Lancaster describes his trouble from the perspective of social constructionism. His criticism points out the popularized pseudoscientific claims about nature and laws of evolution applied to social life and how these sustain identity, politics, that tend to be conservative and even harmful when they ought to be as radical as reality. Lancaster is concerned with what he calls genomania, the rise of naturalizing tendencies in society shaped by sociobiology and evolutionary psychology and put forward by short-sighted media. These tendencies nest reactionary attitudes, giving quote-unquote natural explanations to unjust institutions, e.g. gender, inequalities, racism, class stratification, war, even genocide. According to Lancaster, these quote-unquote natural explanations ultimately derive from the maximalist logic of quote genetic competition, end quote, and heteronormativity, thus undermining the progress and acknowledging the rights of sexually marginal groups, let me do that one more time. So according to Lancaster, these natural explanations ultimately derive from the maximalist logic of genetic competition and heteronormativity, thus undermining the progress in acknowledging the rights of sexually marginal groups, as well as squeezing a range of other real-life diversities to the edge of sociopolitical normalcy. Um, So all of that is It's a review of this really beautiful chapter, in particular inside of that book, The Nature of Sex, where Lancaster is showing how the pop media has taken up a particular type of science. This Again, he cites sociobiology and evolutionary psychology, and these are both fringe departments. um, I will tell you outright, and this is a reflection of my own training and, and thinking that these aren't science. They sound like science, but they're pseudoscience. They are much like Joseph Campbell's thinking that I talked to you a little bit about last week. These are deductive sciences. These are sciences that really start with shared understandings about how the world is. Like, For example, a shared understanding that, um, how do I say this, men are, the shared understanding would be men are more aggressive than women, for example. And so, sociobiologists are really good at going out and finding the evidence. Um, and I've got really good counter examples to this, but I'm not going to share them with you here because I don't want this to be another 70-minute podcast. Uh, push back, and I'll, I'll share those with you if if you want to know them. Anyways, so that's sociobiology. Sociobiology is also um, it's it's about looking. It's a, it's about understanding the social in via like the biological world, for example, it's about looking to the biological world to to explain things that, that we see. And often those things that we see in society are hierarchical and are unjust. And so when you start to look for the causes in biology, for, for things that are ultimately injustices, you start to find what you're looking for. Just like This is, again, just like what Joseph Campbell was doing when he was looking for universality in all of mythology. And here again becomes a really nice point for me to say neatly to you. That idea of a monomyth, I just want to make really clear for a couple of you in case this was confusing or you missed it. My giving you those images up front of that tree of religions or that... um, map of interconnectedness of world mythologies those are really sexy to look at they're really satisfying because they give us buckets into which we can fit our thinking they're just they're ordered right it's easier to think when when knowledge is ordered like we go to math to do math and we go to science to do science and we, you know, go to this region of the world to study this kind of mythology that's dominated by hyenas and rabbits, and we don't have to study all of the mythology in the region, because we can take any one and it's representative of the region, really, the region, pardon. That just, it, like, simplifies our thinking about the mythologies of a certain region, and it also simplifies our need to, like, go do research and, and go learn, because we can say, well, any one of these is representative of all of the others, and it's just, it, it allows us to fit more information into our head. But it's problematic, it doesn't hold up to, to reality. It is, um, those categorizations are social constructions, and also importantly, in both cases, the tree of religions that are increasing in complexity and also that map of the world and the myths within kind of fit into their regions as as singular as, as look, at. you could divide the map in this way and then say this is Southeast Asian mythology those were all constructed by outsiders. And that's important too. Um, so there, uh, I, I just, I'm a little bit belaboring that, but I want you to, to know that that's not, there are ways that people might still in 2022 teach this class where you go to each region and you do a sample and you say, okay, now we've done Southeast Asian mythology. We're not doing that here. We're taking for granted that um, communities have mythologies Mythologies don't map onto nations, that's important to remember. Um, They can, but they don't always. And even when they do map onto nations, not everybody within that nation feels represented by that mythology, claims that mythology as their own, etc. So in this class, we're embracing complexity and messiness, right? That's what I want to say. Let me jump from there to... Sorry for using overusing the word. One time I overused the word messy. One time I overused the word quick. Now I'm overusing the word jump. But that's really what I'm doing. I'm scrolling through your posts. Um, just if you were one who asked that question about, like, how could we even fathom every mythology in the world coming from a single basic idea and a single basic mythology, you're right. Um, we can fathom it because we think of evolution as the same way. We think of evolution as being, like, this one-celled creature appeared and then became a two-celled creature and then became a three-celled creature and then we had a fish that, you know, swam and then it grew legs and it walked up on land and like we've got, these are myths too and these are really interesting to think with because we imagine them as images, right? Think of how often you have seen images of evolution and think of how singular the images we use to represent biological evolution are. And then therefore think about, right, images are really impactful. Images are worth a thousand words. Images are worth so much more than a thousand words. But so imagine how that informs our thinking about society even when we don't want it to. That's a really good example of the insidiousness of myth. And so I just want to say, I think you were really right to note and say, you know, this doesn't, I don't understand this, how can we get here um, to all of the complexity that we find today? My answer is we can't, that doesn't make sense, and that denies um, agency and creativity to each individual community of people who has developed their own mythology. Do I sound exacerbated? I am a little bit exacerbated, but I wish we were live, you guys. I love talking about this stuff. I'm sitting in my bedroom by myself, super animated. Um, All right, Um, that leads us to multicultural. Adriana, I haven't addressed the rest of your question yet. I'm still going to keep cycling back to it. It's going to frame all of my thinking here for you this morning. Um, Multiculturalism, let's go there. So, Joseph, in a sense, you were asking about that. Like, look at all of the diversity and myths that we really have. So, how do, how can we make sense out of this with a monomyth? We can't. Yo yo, I really liked your. What even is the ideal multiculture? Is it where multiple cultures are able to exist peacefully and equally? Or would it be more like a Pangea of cultures, whole and together? Or is it some sort of other idea? I love that. I love a Pangea of cultures. I love. I love that you asked this question, um, because I've never stopped to consider it. What I want to do is add into this, Nicholas, then I'm going to define culture the way I like to define it, and then I'm either going to think aloud for you or or say, let's continue to think on this. Um, This is me thinking in real time. Nicholas, you also pulled from um, the readings that distinction between ethnic nation or civic nation. um, Ethnic gives no choice on your own identity, while civic allows everyone to choose their own culture. uh, You write, do you think we have the ability to choose our own culture and thrive within that culture even though we are not born into it? And that was borrowing from the reading, which was narrative, Confessions of a Blue-Eyed Indian, the author's story. And I don't know if I made this really clear, but this was part of a master's thesis that a student wrote for um, Minnesota State University at Mankato, and I was looking for first-hand accounts of being um, First People or American Indian in the United States, and I found this, I'm really thrilled with it, because I had never read it before, and I'm glad that so many of you asked questions back, that's what I want to say too. But now, back to this thing, this issue of multiculturalism, and then relatedly, being able to choose one's own culture or not. Joshua Madri says, like, you can be you can be part of an ethnic nation or you can be part of a civic nation. And ethnicity is really just about, like, people are looking for that genetic underpinning. Um, civic nation is more you opt in, you don't opt in. You, you have power, you have agency to make that decision. And what I want to say to you first is my favorite definition of culture comes from Clifford Geertz. This really does fit. I'm not just dropping definitions. Clifford Gertz defined culture as this this is how he writes man is an animal suspended and i'm this i'm so disappointed like i want to perform this for you you guys i'm I'm pulling this from my head i'm not reading it off the text this is so internalized now and when i do it live it's so much more impactful because you see it me pulling it from my head right now you're gonna think i'm just reading it to you i'm not reading i swear um gertz wrote and i'm going to say to you from my head man is an animal suspended in webs of significance he himself has construed I take culture to be these webs. I'm gonna say it one more time. Man is an animal suspended in webs of significance he himself has construed. I take culture to be these webs. And so that is, we are the designers of the institutions that order our lives. It doesn't feel like it, but we are, right? Nobody, they weren't, well, I guess, here's where I have to be careful. Um, From within the social sciences, it's generally assumed that there weren't gods or other beings from another world or also aliens who created the political structures and the economic structures and the, ed- the education and the religion and all of these social institutions, identity um, we might consider an institution, language is usually considered an institution, we at least from within the social sciences assume that those are things that came into being and and are products of humanity those aren't things that were god-given if you will or gods given if you will and so what clifford goertz is saying is man is an animal who has construed these webs of significance he's made all of the the meaning in the world and he's ordered the world and he means us pretty this is slightly old um we it's inclusive um, I take culture to be these webs, and so I always picture a spider web, of course. And then I picture culture as that spider web. And culture, just so you know, it's not a group of people. It's not something someone has by this definition. It's not like what's your culture? This is my culture. That's not like something you can hold in your hand. It's not. It's really. It's a shared set of understandings. Um, and bound up with that shared set of understandings are all of the institutions that order our lives. And so, you will really rarely hear me talk about culture. I'll almost always say to you cultural understandings. The cultural understandings of the Akoma peoples, for example, or the shared cultural understandings of um, white middle-class Americans in the US. And when you say shared cultural understandings, that's really useful because you're not saying everybody thinks this and you're like, ignoring the people that don't think that. You're saying there is a certain shared understanding. Like There's a shared understanding that when I say the word blue to you, you're going to picture something within a certain range on the color spectrum, right? And if that didn't work, language wouldn't work. And another thing is, and you're going to get a little bit of this with um, Lara Boroditsky this week, who I love, and I also haven't taught that talk in a really long time, so I'm so excited. Um, you're also, I mean, <laughs> oh my god, I'm all over the place. I, so, culture is what allows us to, like, shared understandings would allow us to communicate, There would allow us to function in society, their why norms are norms and values are values, right? We would have just utter chaos and total anarchy if we didn't share any understandings, starting with understandings around language, right? Every word is really just a symbol. There's nothing inherent to the word blue that makes it mean what you picture when I say it. And I can prove that to you because um, blue and azul have nothing in common, and yet they index, they point to, they, they. That's not really true. They symbolize um, similar sets of colors from the color spectrum, and so there. Um, what I want, I want to say that to you because I think that then once we have that understanding of culture as something that is dynamic, it's ever changing. It is at its core really just shared understandings, and you can have a multiplicity of shared cultural understandings. They can exist simultaneously. Humans, individual humans, often have them. We've got to think about this. But think about somebody you know, and this might include you, who believes in both science and Judaism, or science and Christianity. Isn't that really interesting that human beings are allowed to do that? Those are competing sets of understandings. Um, in, at times they're actually in direct conflict to one another. And yet we as human beings have this amazing ability to understand both as truth simultaneously. Um, and, and it doesn't like set off sparks and we don't like implode. And so what I think I want to say to you, yo-yo, let's go let's start there. Um, there's some semblance to this chaos, is um, what is the ideal multiculture? And I think that once we stop thinking about cultures as, as, like, imagine cultures aren't circumscribed. They're not balls. It's not like this group has X culture and this group has Y culture and this group has Z culture. But if we start thinking about culture as something that is um, ever-shifting but also diverse and dynamic, like, it's easier to remem- to imagine them as, as existing simultaneously. And, and it's easier to, exa- to imagine... Um, the planet is necessarily multicultural, right? It's not something that we have to create. We're already there. And so what is the ideal multiculturalism? Um, it's a planet of justice, of equality, of of being able to listen to one another, of, of being able to hear, um, who did this really well? Joseph did this really well in... Your introduction to yourself, where you are Jewish and you're citing books one through five from the Torah as um, your sacred narrative in identifying and introducing yourself to the class, and I was really impressed, and I also laughed at first because you started by saying from the Torah, or well, the Bible if you want, and. That's a really important point, and later on in that same talk you say, well, the Torah, or the Bible, or the Quran, because like they're all kind of made of the same stuff, right? And um, That's my paraphrase, and it's a terrible paraphrase, and I apologize, but that's something that in 2022 is so easy to forget. There are so many overlapping features in those three particular major books of world religions. Um, And we're so focused on difference and distinction that we forget to see them and we forget that it's okay. Um, And here I'm going to tell you two things. One, I have an almost two-year-old whose name is Elias, or Elias, or Elijah, or in Arabic it would be Ilyas. And his father will tell you he has other reasons for having that name, but what I did when I needed to choose a name for a child and know that I'm a, somebody trained in linguistic anthropologists and I think a lot about symbolism symbolism and meaning and um so when you're asked to put a name on a human being it's really overwhelming um what I wanted was I wanted something that worked transnationally and and multi-linguistically, and so I wanted a name that was going to be easy to be said all over the world and I also wanted a name that um really, that's it. Um, and how I figured that out, that was, that was my 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 crux. Like, I want this to be phonetic in a multiplicity of languages. And what I did was I started looking around the internet for names that exist in the Bible, the Torah, and the Quran. And you can find these lists. And there are a lot more men than there are women. So luckily, we had a boy and could give him, we had a longer list of names to choose from. Um, but Elias, Elias, Elijah, Elias... Um, however you wish to pronounce it and we don't care uh, is a prophet in the Bible a prophet in the Torah and a prophet in the Quran and so that's just that's one way of making this point to you another way of making this point to you is um, and I don't want to conflate these religions because they're totally distinct in so many other ways but I'm overemphasizing this because we get so used to I think the media is part to blame right? the moral panics around Islam are definitely part to blame we'll talk moral panics in a week. Um, we'll read about Moral Panics in a week, we'll talk it in two weeks. What I think is that um, we forget, we we are so used to thinking culture doesn't overlap, a culture can't um, be distinct and shared simultaneously. All right, stop. Here's what I want to say. Amartya Sen is an economist who won a Nobel and he is from India, has worked most of his life in the UK, and he wrote a book, Development is Freedom. He wrote another book that people read less often, but is really important, called Identity and Violence. And it's an entire book written by an economist that really just says if we could learn to recognize the multiplicity of categories, social categories, into which we all fit, we'd have a much better time getting along. So if say, a Christian father and a Muslim father, instead of seeing Christian in one and Muslim in the other, could simultaneously see the father part, then all of a sudden you'd have this Ability to get past the Christian versus Muslim and you could just drop religion for a minute and you could talk about fatherhood for example Right, and so it's a whole book that says that it says it really beautifully. So if you run out of things to read um, It's good. It, I think it'll make you feel good It's a little bit dated because he's an economist who uses statistics and this book probably came out in about 2006-ish that's I think when I read it um, but my point is so for me, Jojo, what is even the ideal multicultural? It's really not about multicultural. It's uh, we already have multicultural culture. What makes the world ideal, the necessarily multicultural world ideal is our being able to understand ourselves as individuals and communities in all of our complexities. And so We need to understand that at any given moment we stand from a multiplicity of places. We claim a multiplicity of identities. We even cling to and believe with a multiplicity of sets of understandings. And again, think back to the scientist who is also Jewish or Christian, etc. Um, I mean, think of the capitalist who's also Protestant. There's a really famous book. Um, Capitalism and the Protestant Ethic, which, let me not talk at length, but that's Durkheim, and it was a really important, really early sociological study of how Protestantism was really well adapted for the spread of capitalism. Um, Catholicism wanted you to swear poverty, Protestantism did not, and so it was really just better suited for allowing human individuals to be good capitalists, which meant um, really good at accumulating capital and simultaneously faithful believers and followers of god and the teachings of god um i'm going to say that really respectfully even though it maybe didn't sound like it Uh, just know that's an important study in sociology there um all right uh so and then nicholas that gets to your do you think we have the ability to choose our own culture i think um it's it's a combination I think, yes, we're human and we're agentive, and I think we are socialized into shared understandings. Like, do we have the ability to choose what blue means? We do. Um, does everything fall apart and is it a mess if we decide blue means red, and we don't manage to convince everyone else around us that that's the decision? Um, yes. And so, um, is that an okay answer to your question? We're, we're, we're agentive, we can do all sorts of things. Um, let me go back to, I'm going to use you to keep me grounded, if you don't mind. Ariana, again, the kind of underlying question all the way through this. Um, how can certain myths in American culture be separated from outright lies? Who gets to decide? All right, so that's related because, Nicholas, I just said, like if we want to decide blue means red... Awesome. What we need is a campaign, and the ability, the power, the resources, whatever it takes to to equal power to convince the rest of the people to join us, or not the rest of the people, but enough people that it functions. We need to get those people to agree with us. Um, and often, and this is um, not a good answer, but often, I mean, there are all sorts of reasons why certain people have more power than other people, but you're going to see next week that when we start to talk about power, we're not just going to talk about, like, some people have power and other people don't. We're also going to look at, like, how power functions in every single human social interaction ever. And so in every moment, in every context, there is power. And it's often unequally distributed. It's not just that, you know, this person doesn't have any and this person does. It's more complicated than that. Again, this is a class for thinking in complicated and messy ways. Um, But so... Who gets to decide? Is it something we just live with? It's, I mean, ultimately, this isn't satisfying, but I think this is what Marx, (laughs) Marx thought revolution was how you arrived at change. Um, And Marx thought that the poorer people were going to be so frustrated, fed up with their lot in life that they were gonna get pissed and they were gonna come together and they were gonna rise up and that was going to overthrow capitalism. Capitalism would necessarily implode when there were so many poor people at the bottom and they finally just said, I've had it, I'm done. And then capitalism doesn't work when you don't have a laboring class. Um, What Marx maybe misunderstood was the power of ideology. And we might also then say the power of myth. When I use ideology, I just mean a set of ideas that inform a worldview. And all of the myths... The, the contemporary American myths that Ira Chernus described, for example, are part of what I would call contemporary American ideology. And the more myths add up to create this particular worldview in which we really do believe that you pull yourself up by the bootstraps and this is the land of the free and you can work hard and you can get it, And the more layers of myths there are to construct that um, quote-unquote reality, that, that view of the world, the closer to hegemony that way of thinking is, right? Hegemony is something that is like so taken for granted, we don't even question it anymore. And so, um, how do we live in a society where such a large population believes in these living myths? That's where I want to get. We've been doing it all of our lives. The question becomes, you know, and, and I know that you're thinking about like, this particular moment, and this particular moment does feel qualitatively different, and the last 10 years feel qualitatively different, because more um, maybe flagrantly seeming non-truths are more easily accepted as, as truths and, and as motivations for doing things in this last decade, at least, I don't know if that's true, but it feels that way, right? And so, um, how do you live in a society like that? The question really is, how do you change that society? And that's, again, (laughs) let me me drop my project in this class. My question is, like, next week we're going to be talking a lot about how language shapes thought. And my question ultimately is, if language shapes thought, then do narratives also shape thoughts? And is there a way to counter these almost hegemonic worldviews that are really built on these layers and layers and layers and layers and layers layers of stories that we are told, that we're socialized into, also that we tell ourselves, that we... um, take up and cling to because they do something for us? Is there a way to switch out the narratives and to do so convincingly? And maybe this is a little bit like the project of convincing the masses that blue means red. Um, But I'm posing that sincerely to you. And now let me um, say, I wanted to do, I've done so much marks here, I just wanna keep with it, can I? Hallie, you ask, so American myths are never fully in anyone's control. This is a quote and then a question. This is first from Cherno So, American myths are never fully in anyone's control. Myths are constantly being renegotiated because every American affects the myths and they're changing shapes to some degree. And then you ask for clarification on that statement. And I'm glad that you did that. Um, you said, I feel like those statements are contradictory, right? They're never in anyone's control, but they are... Um, they're renegotiated by every American, and every American affects them. So how are they, like, never fully in our control, yet we're making them? And this is also like culture. Culture's never fully in our control, and yet we are the makers of culture. And this is where I get to use Karl Marx one last time, and then I will go on to some other thinkers. Um, Karl Marx in 1852, in the 18th Brumaire, writes, this is my favorite Karl Marx quote, and again, I don't have to read this one to you, I can just tell it to you. Marx wrote, Men make their own history, but they do not make it just as they please. They do not make it under circumstances chosen by themselves, but under circumstances directly encountered, given, and transmitted from the past. The tradition of all dead generations weighs like a nightmare on the brain of the living. I'm going to tell you what Marx means in my interpretation, and then I'm going to read it to you one more time, because this is... You guys, I mean, I don't know if you know how eloquent Marx was. That's why. All right, so... Marx is saying, um, yeah, yeah, we, we make our history. It's like you're born and you get to make your own history, but it's not like you're born on a blank slate. It's not like you get to start from zero. It's not a blank page, right? You're born into certain context, into certain circumstances. Um, and then these weigh like a nightmare on the brain of the living. Here's that quote one more time. Men make their own history but they do not make it just as they please. They do not make it under circumstances chosen by themselves, but under circumstances directly encountered, given, and transmitted from the past. The tradition of all dead generations weighs like a nightmare on the brain of the living. Um, I don't know, Hallie, if that clarifies the statement, like, myths aren't fully in our control and yet we are the makers of myths, culture isn't fully in our control yet we are the makers of culture, we are the weavers of the webs in which we are entangled. Um, that, that's, that's our lot in life as human beings and we like again to distinguish the individual from the community and to think like okay I as an individual either can do this or I can't do this so can I make myths or can't I, can I make culture or not. Um, but we forget that we have a different degree of power as members of masses and that also we can, in being complicit with something, for example, we're that's a kind of an agency. Like maybe we're taking for granted the same things that other people are taking for granted. Um, but in doing that, we're reinforcing that taken for grantedness. And so I don't know if this is a really satisfying answer, and this is making me think, oh my gosh, I have to look at the time. Yeah. All right. Um, Maybe this just was my class to go to marks and go to marks and go to marks. I didn't get to ritual. So let me use two minutes to get to ritual. Um, And what I really didn't spend a lot of time doing, which this week was all about. Oh my God, you guys, I'm going to do what I did last week. I'm going to keep going. There's two more things I want to talk to you about. I want to talk to you about ritual. And I want to talk to you about um, myth as Bonding, Myth as Identity. Let's start with Myth, myth as Bonding because we're kind of right there. Um, and this is Myth as Identity. Even you were right in looking for links right away between the Turnus reading and the Anderson reading, which was the tea ritual reading. What I liked about those and why they're laid out next to each other is they were both about nationalism. Um, Anderson was writing about the construction of nationalism in Japan through time, behind or, or via ritual, this particular tea ritual. Um, let me insert here that Roland Barthes has written really beautifully about wine in France and constructions of, of French identity via wine, understandings of wine, and categorizations of wine. And so I thought this was really a neat parallel where tea is the um, the practice at the center. And then um, the turnus reading. and. This is important. So it's there because it's saying, okay, we can also construct nationalist identities using stories, these narratives. And again, this is these layered upon layered upon layered upon narratives that start to construct almost hegemonic worldviews. And what's really important, Ethan, and you say this at the end, I feel like that nationalism in Turnus, as a whole felt weird because Turnus didn't at all reference the fact that the land already had its own mythos or stories or faith or symbols before colonization. And this is what, um, even in using the word American, if you'll remember, Chernos says, look, I'm going to use this word and this word itself is a social construct and it's problematic and it's a myth, it's a lie. American to mean the people of the United States is is a falsehood. The Americas are much bigger than that. But I'm going to roll with it. Um, because it is a myth. It, there is shared understanding that when I say the word American, I mean people in the United States. And so what Cernus is saying is saying there is this predominant almost hegemonic um, worldview in the US that is reinforced by these particular by by this particular understanding of the story, the history of Rosa Parks, uh, for example. And so in saying these are American myths, he's not saying the mythologies of the First Peoples and the Original Peoples are not American myths. What he's saying is American in that pop usage that denotes um anyone living in the U.S. and socialized into the U.S. right now, although this is interesting because as soon as I say that I realize not anyone living in the U.S. counts as American, right? Um, We have so many problems right now with understandings of immigrants and how many generations do you have to live in the U.S. before you get to be quote-unquote American and how white does your skin have to be or not to be quote-unquote American. Um, This The reason that we're in this class, the reason that mythology and American mythology in particular matters to us is because these are social constructs. These aren't truths, these aren't realities, these aren't... What Chernos is trying to say is myths aren't just these sacred narratives that belong to, again, I'm going to use it, exotic, capital O, others myths are the stuff of all of our understandings, no matter how we're positioned, no matter where we're from, even if we only think of ourselves as like totally mutt without any real ancestral lines that we can identify to any particular place or places, and we just think of ourselves as as decontextualized, ahistorical, um, living in 2022, even as such, there are still sacred narratives that are informing our worldviews, our ideologies, that are informing our understandings of of what it means to revolt, how to revolt, who does it, Um, also that inform our understandings of who succeeds and doesn't, of who's poor and who's rich, all of these are, are being able to be just okay with things that would otherwise be blatantly unjust stems from this set of narratives, this layering over of narratives that tell us there's a reason things are this way. And then that gets all the way back to Karl Marx's thinking about religion and the problem with religion was it gave all of these really um, terribly oppressed masses of laborers a sense that there was order in the world and they were working towards something and they were working towards a better life in the next world and they just had to be sort of buckled down and get through this one to get to that better Future, other world, right? Um, there, that's what I want to say. So many others of you asked really good questions um, about identity and group formation via myth. And so we'll keep talking about these things, especially as we move into functionalism. But let me now say about ritual for those of you who asked explicitly, it's all the way down here in the bottom of my list. Ritual versus routine. Shawnee, you had this, what could be considered a ritual, stuck with you as you were listening to the podcast. Um, And then you gave this really awesome account of your own experience at powwows, um, native people. Some religious ceremonies that native people have include dancing that can be for fun, for healing, for religious reasons. When we dance in a jingle dress, it is a healing dance, um, and so that's really interesting because you started to dissect, to pull apart the different types of dance, and um, again, that that took your own sh- shared understanding, your insider knowledge, your your deep lived experience in this variety of dances that you were able to pick apart and say it's not um, powwow versus club dancing. It's let's pull these genres apart into subgenres. there's so much else going on, and, and you can distinguish type by, by other um, objects that are included, by dress practice, etc. And then what I thought I would say to you here, because it fits, is um, Victor Turner's definition of ritual, and I thought some of you would find this satisfying, I wanted to do it last week and it didn't fit. Victor Turner is who most people, even today, still cite when they want to cite a kind of old-school definition of ritual, and this could be useful to you. Um, It's a little bit more locked down than my own working definition. In 1972, Victor Turner wrote, a ritual is a stereotyped sequence of activities performed in a sequestered place and designed to influence preternatural entities or forces on behalf of the actor's goals and interests. So if last week I said, okay, most scholars shy away from ritual, it's too problematic, they just don't touch it, that's true, but it's also true that you can still think with and use and think about ritual, um, whether you want to think about it in a, the way it has been thought about in a more historical sense, obviously drop the racism, drop the classism, but you can continue to use ritual to study powwow, for example, um, or whether you want to talk about, like, new agey, um, super 2022s on point like trending rituals or whether you want to talk about brushing one's teeth but again one more time how does victor turner make sense of what does and doesn't count as a ritual a stereotyped sequence of events or activities performed in a sequestered place that means sequestered place just means it always takes place in a particular place like you can't a powwow maybe isn't supposed to happen three stories underground in a bomb shelter it's supposed to happen outdoors etc right um there's a kind of a and a shared understanding that some places are the kinds of places where a ritual can be performed in some places aren't right you don't perform a tea ritual in a bathroom most of the time in most contexts let's say and to do that would be to subvert the ritual to change the ritual um and then this is what's key from victor turner so it's a stereotyped sequence of activities performed in a sequestered place this is what is key i think designed to influence preternatural entities or forces on behalf of the actor's goals or interests so again this starts to sound like magic right magic as opposed to religion religion was prayer and asking magic was making things happen here in victor turner's thinking about ritual ritual was about making things happen it was about asking for rain for example um, asking for fertility for example and in Victor Turner's definition it was designed to influence the preternatural, that means the otherworldly and so it wasn't just brushing one's teeth by Victor Turner's definition would not be a ritual, dancing, when one is dancing in an attempt to attract the attention of the gods to therefore answer a request that would be ritual, when one is dancing at a club um, to attract the person on the other side of the dance floor, like that just isn't ritual, according to Victor Turner. So, um, if you want these written down, let me know. I can give you guys these as a kind of a cheat sheet. These are just, just no. Victor Turner, famous for writing on performance and ritual his entire career. If you type Victor Turner ritual into Google, you get the definition I just read you. It's a good point of departure. Um, and then what I didn't get to, and that's okay, I'll, I'll keep them rolling. Um, Eric, you had a really great question about applied symbolism, Nicholas, Aaron, you guys had some really interesting questions, yo-yo also, I was wondering, what we think of, is what we think of as the natural world a myth, I'm gonna come back to that, um, and some of these others too, because you guys are, are posing new theories, you're suggesting um, totally new ideas that are really useful. To think with, or 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 that we need to stop and consider. Eric, you're posing this idea of applied symbolism that I want to stop and think about. So there you guys, another super um, insanely overlong. Um, what is this? It's a podcast. Thank you for being with me. I am going to keep <laughs> working on getting these tight. I hope you have a great week, and um, we are in touch let me know, please, please. You can always, obviously, send me questions via this problem-posing platform, but you can always send me questions directly, too. We're in conversation around everything you post here, so your artists, um, your first artist case studies were really fabulous, and I'm in conversation with you there. Also, your introductions by myth, I'm in conversation with you there, so anywhere you want, you find me in conversation with you, feel free to be back in conversation with me, okay? Take care, again, enjoy your week. Cheers and ciao.